everyone. Uh, my name is Dave Miller, and uh, I come to this church sometimes. Uh, <laughs> we are, my wife Esther and I, uh, for those of you are, that are newer, uh, we are missionaries of this church who live here in Philadelphia but serve in Latin America now, since November. Uh, and I just, I'm going to take a, a little bit of time, if I may. Uh, I just got back on Monday morning early uh, from a trip to Chile and to Colombia. And uh, it, I, it was uh, very, very rich. Uh, when I got back, they were asking me at the office how I felt about the trip. And I said I felt used and abused. And uh, someone thought that didn't sound very good. So they suggested that I was, I had spent and was, I spent, uh, what does Paul say? I would spend and be spent. And that's exactly uh, how I felt. It was very, very uh, tiring. In Chile, we did a, uh, a retreat for pastors in which we also trained uh, some guys to be using the resources of See uh, Jesus. And then uh, I went to Colombia, and we did some training in Medellin. We went from Medellin to Earth in Bogota, then to Medellin, then to Cartagena, uh, which Sue is on the Caribbean. Uh, beautiful, beautiful place. And then to another port city of Colombia called Barranquilla. So, uh, and we were doing trainings of disciples. The See Jesus is strictly a discipling mission, and we train national leaders to train others in following Jesus. That's, that's what we were doing. So I am also a uh, disciple, uh, getting familiar with the resources of this new mission, and then also trying to do this in Spanish. Uh, so it's really, I tell you, at the end of a day, I thought my head was going to explode from speaking and thinking in Spanish. For those of you Spanish speakers here that are trying to learn English, uh, I know you understand. Let's, uh, let's turn our attention now to uh, Luke. Again, uh, we are in a series in Luke, and I want to turn our attention to Luke 22. I think our series brings us to Luke 22 and verse 14 uh, down through uh, verse 30. The title of this uh, sermon, this message, is The Kingdom and the Holy Supper, uh, as the Latinos call it. The Holy Supper. Let me read this uh, passage for you, beginning in verse 14. And please pay attention. This is God's word. And when the hour came, he, that is Jesus, reclined at table with the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks... He broke, it to the, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be uh, who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves? And you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This passage is uh, Luke's story of the institution of the Holy Supper, or the Lord's Table as we call it here, or communion. And my uh, temptation this morning is to try to teach you what the Bible says about the Lord's Supper. Um, But I think I'm going to do simply what Luke is doing. Uh, That temptation to tell you, uh, you know, theologically, you know, what what we're doing when we celebrate the Lord's table here uh, once a month is not without warrant because it appears uh, that the guys in the early centuries of the church who copied texts of the Greek New Testament, how many of you know the Bible was not written in English? Okay, it was written in Greek, and in the early days, before there were printing presses, it was copied by hand over and over and over again, and there are actually extant, that's a, you know, that's a highfalutin word that means they exist, today, thousands and thousands of these copies And I don't know if any of you are looking for work, but uh, you can get a job uh, studying these texts and comparing them with one another to try to figure out what did the original text say, because we don't have the original, believe it or not. So that's somebody does that, uh, believe it or not. I found that part of seminary extremely uh, boring, but uh, I I prefer to just follow the... uh, the footnote in your Bible, if you have a Bible, you might notice that the second half of verse 19 and all of verse 20 are probably not in the original text. Because some scribe wanted to try to straighten Jesus out (laughs) uh, on what was recorded here in Luke. And so supposedly it ends with, he broke it, the bread, and gave it to them saying... This is my body, period. 
And then the rest of verse 19 and all of verse 20 is not there, talking about the new covenant in his blood and explaining this is in remembrance of me and so forth. So even the scribes, as they came to this text, they felt like they had to straighten us out on this, and they added some more details in there to uh, confuse preachers like me who are trying to get ready to preach this and make sense of it. But I want to... I want to stick with um, what Luke is intending here um, and, and to get sort of the theological stuff out of the way, I thought I'd just tell you. We do not believe that the elements here turn into the body, actual physical body and blood of Christ. So some of you, if you're coming out of a Roman Catholic background, you, sh- you need to understand that that's a difference in this church. We don't believe, uh, like Lutherans, our Lutheran brethren say, that somehow or another the presence of Jesus is all around the bread and the wine. Uh, and I, I, I hope that was a good Lutheran representation. I can't, I, could, I had a hard time figuring out Luther, Luther's stand on this. The third idea is that the bread and the cup are simply remembrances of Jesus' body, that uh, Zwingli Uh, came up with that. We believe that, that it is that, but it's also something more. We believe, we believe that there is sanctifying grace for you as you take those elements in faith in what the elements represent. Is that right, John? So I'm not going to get kicked out. Do you understand me? Uh, in our church, there's something more going on in the communion service than just remembering that Jesus died. That is important, and I think in Paul's explanations, which is where we get all the theology about communion, he does say this is to be done in remembrance of Christ. But we believe that as you participate in faith, you have to have faith hooked to the elements, and in some way, grace comes to you. Sanctifying grace comes to you when you participate in the Lord's Supper. So it's important. It's one of what we call, in our circles, a means of grace. How do you, you know, we talk about the grace of God, but how does it come to us? One of the ways it comes is in the communion supper together. And there's mystery in that. Uh, I can't You know, I can't give you a a mechanical uh, uh, description of what exactly transpires in that. In a way, that's between you and Jesus. He engages you as you put your faith in what the elements represent to us, which is his body given for us and his blood uh, poured out for us. Now, I got that out of the way. I want to do what Luke is doing here. And uh, some of you know uh, Jack Miller, who was, uh, you know, part of the founding of our church uh, and several other churches. Some of you know that and know Jack Miller, knew him. Some of you here knew him personally. Jack was a professor of uh, pastoral theology at Westminster Seminary. And Jack's major contribution theologically to the church was that you read Paul in Romans and Galatians 
through the eyes of Luke. Now, what does he mean by that? In Romans and Galatians, you have all the glorious theology of justification by faith and sanctification by faith, all spelled out and laid out for us uh, in, for, you know, a guy like me especially, in theological wonder. But when you read Luke, you're seeing the grace that Paul explains. You're seeing it lived out in the life of Jesus. And that's what we have here. You follow me? Are you with me? So you read, you look at the stories in Luke as representing this kind of abstract grace that Paul talks about. And we can see that fleshed out right here in this institution of the Lord's Supper and then the fight that takes place. (laughs) It's real practical stuff. Um, So Jesus... My first point is that Jesus shares his heart with his disciples. He shares his desires for them. Let me establish, first of all, that this meal, this meal is all about the kingdom. If you look in verse uh, 15, uh, 16, he says that I will not eat this again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then in verse 18, he repeats that. I, uh, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then in verse 24 and 25, when after the fight breaks out and the disciples are wrestling around on the floor, Jesus says to them, um, kings, kings act this way. He, so he's referring again to kingdoms, and then he wraps up the passage in the end by talking about Um, He wants them to eat and drink with him in my kingdom, and I'm going to give kingdoms to you if you'll get up off the floor and stop wrestling with each other. Okay, so this is is about the kingdom. Um, And it's about the end of the age. He's, He's looking forward to the coming of the kingdom at the end of the passage. And... Uh, and he's anticipating that. And he's sharing, he's sharing his desire for them to be engaged in that. I, you know, I, I don't want to take a lot of time now, but if you're, if, when, when I use the word kingdom, if you're at all like me in my uh, growth in the Lord through the years, I went through a long stage in my life when I didn't know what the heck kingdom meant. I, did, I was brought up in a tradition that said the kingdom's coming in the future. And so I didn't know what I was supposed to do now. But we believe that the kingdom is here. It's here now because the king came. Jesus is the king. And he is ruling over all things now. He is the king now. Do not fret over the current administration in Washington. He is the king over the church now. Do not fret about your church being in disarray. He is the king over your family. Do not fret over your children. They belong to him. So he's ruling over all of these things, and he's redeeming all of these things. So all of these things are under his rule. 
Another fallacy in the church is to think that the church is the kingdom. The church isn't the kingdom. That's why we don't have soldiers. How would you like to manage that, John? (laughs) We don't have soldiers. We are a ministration of the word. We speak. But the church is under the kingdom, and the church should be the place where the kingdom of God and the rule of Jesus is most manifest. Does that help you to understand the kingdom? And there's also a future reality coming that is going to blow our socks off. Nobody will miss it. It will be here. I believe it's going to be here on earth. And no one will miss it. Everyone will know that Jesus is Lord and every knee will bow to him. And Jesus has his eye on that in this supper as he is about to suffer. So that's kind of the setting here of what's going on. But he goes, he, he moves in establishing that this meal is a kingdom meal. This is, a, this is a, a kingdom supper. He shares, he says something that is so typical of Jesus. You see this in, it moves me, it just moves me. Verse 15, he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. That is a very, very strong word. It literally says, I with desire have desired to eat this meal with you. His heart is for his disciples. He earnestly wants to be with them. He wants to eat with them. This is the same word that is used in other passages in the New Testament about sexual desire. It's very strong. I have lusted to eat with you, if I may say it graciously. He has strong desires uh, to eat with them. There's something... There's something May I say this? There's something passionate about eating together. If your families um, don't eat meals together, folks, there's something, there's something wrong. Meal, meals together are important. Um, I, uh, I, I just returned on Monday early in the morning from, um, from Bogota, and Thursday night, I showed up here for my ESL class. We have a, in this church, we have an ESL program that's going on on Thursday nights. If any of you are interested in helping to teach that, I think we're going to be needing help. It's growing. Uh, we had three new students on Thursday night from Columbia. All three of them had just arrived two weeks ago. They live in this neighborhood. They walk to church, to, to the to get English instruction. They found us on the web somehow. I don't know how that happened. But they found us and they were here. I have a, I have a Colombian woman in my class, and, so, and she's from near Bogota, and so she was really interested to know what I thought of her country. And what, do you, what was one of the first things she said to me? What did you eat? And there was... You know, there was passion there. She was almost jumping out of her chair at me. 
what did you eat? Oh, she started listing off some things. I couldn't even understand what she was saying, but I heard her say, arroz de, ch- de coco. They have rice in Colombia that they cook in coconut milk. It is so good. And I think it has some other stuff thrown in there, but man, was that good. So there was an immediate connection with my student, a new level of connection with my student because I had eaten some of her food that she misses and that she loves in Colombia. Have you ever noticed how often Jesus is eating with people? Have you ever noticed that? Uh, I think in Sunday school, somebody mentioned the fact that Jesus was criticized by the Pharisees because he was always eating and drinking with sinners. He was criticized for that. I've been criticized for that too, by the way, uh, in Chile. I felt close to Jesus, actually, with sinners in particular. In, uh, In the book of Revelation... You remember the first couple of chapters there are letters that are written to the churches, uh, seven historical churches in Asia Minor at that time that John writes to. And one of them is Laodicea. And you remember it's the passage where it's it's that famous Jesus standing at the door and knocking. Uh, You've probably seen paintings of that. uh, And it's in a garden and the flowers are arranged around the door so it looks like a heart. Did you ever see that? It's kind of cheesy, but I don't know. Maybe it's a great painting. Yeah, Dwight knows it. He grew up Plymouth Brethren. He knows that painting. Well, Jesus, do you know why he's knocking on the door? Do you remember the the rest of the passage? That I may come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus is knocking on the door in Revelation. This Laodicean church was probably the worst church in Asia Minor at the time. And Jesus is knocking on the door, wanting to come in to eat. He's not coming in to throw rules at you. He's not coming in to see what kind of magazines you have in your magazine rack. He's not coming in to see if you clean your bathroom right. He wants to eat with you. He wants to sit down with you. He wants to fellowship with you. He wants you to eat with him. That's our Jesus. That's our Savior. He wants to engage us, and he strongly desires to do this. Um, His eating, in in this setting... He is eating with his with the apostles, the founders of the church, in recognition that his suffering and death that are about to happen are the means by which the kingdom is fulfilled, this kingdom of joy and eating and celebration. That's what we're called to. Christianity is the real party. But not yet. (laughs) There's suffering. And he talks about that. And so what what ends up happening, uh, which is typical, you know, uh, this this church, um, whether you know it or not, stands in a tradition that goes back to the 17th century and the Reformation. Some of you may have heard of that period of history called the Reformation where... 
people were trying to see change come uh, to the church uh, and some good things. And this church sits in um, that tradition. Well, there were leaders in the Reformation movement, and the leaders in the Reformation movement agreed on just about everything. They agreed on baptism. They agreed on predestination and election. They agreed on soteriology. They, they agreed on the resurrection from the dead. The, all the, they agreed on a lot of stuff. They didn't agree on this, on communion. There was disagreement, and they fought over it. That's what happens here. <laughs> Jesus institutes the supper, and there's fighting. Just like with the reformers. I don't know. I thought that was ironic. It probably doesn't have any practical application, but it interested me. (laughs) The disciples have their own desires. Jesus has expressed his desire to be with them and to communicate with, commune with them. But they have their own desires, and their desires are for greatness and power. In verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And so in typical fashion, they're not in step with Jesus. Jesus is sharing his heart with them to be with them, and all they're concerned about is who's the greatest. And it doesn't even sound like they're necessarily concerned about who's the greatest in the kingdom. They're just talking about who's the greatest guy. Who's the, it sounds like professional wrestlers talking. These are our, the founders of the church talking like this. It's possible, it's possible that this argument got started over seating arrangements. You can figure that out when you look at some of the other Gospels and they share more detail about it. And uh, I, I almost wish I had an iPad up here to draw this for you, but you have a, in, the Jews at this time had adopted the customs of the Greeks, which was to recline when they ate. And so they would be at a low table on a, either on the floor with pillows or on a, a low uh, de- even or something, a low couch with, that was raised on one end. They would lean on their left and they would eat with their right, with their legs out like this. So they're that way around the table. It doesn't sound comfortable to me, but evidently it was, it was what the Greeks did. And if you read the other, if you read the other gospels uh, about this, it appears that this potentially was primarily a dispute between Peter and Judas. And Judas won out. Judas got to sit right beside Jesus on the on the left side, which actually was considered the preferred side. And John was on the right, and Peter was down at the far end of the t- Peter ended up sitting the farthest away. (laughs) He lost, I don't know how he lost. I don't know if Jesus finally took them in hand and just told him to sit down. You know, like my mom used to say to seven kids, sit down and shut up. Let's pray. (laughs) (laughs) But you see, this desire... um, to have primacy. Why did they want to set near Jesus? It's because it gave them access. It gave them access to him. It gave them a sense of power. And Jesus says to them, 
this is not, this is not the way of my kingdom. This is not the way we do suffer in my kingdom. Um, and he says, you know, this is the way the world does greatness. The world, the Gentiles, he says, meaning the unbelievers, those that are outside the faith. Because remember, this is a Jewish context that this is in. We're talking about the Passover supper, which was the annual sacrifice of the lamb for the atonement of sins in the Jewish custom. And Jesus is converting the Passover into what we now call the Lord's Lord's, uh, table. But he says to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. Gentiles do it this way. Unbelievers do it this way. You flex your muscles and the strongest guy wins. You have authority and power over people. That's the way the Gentiles do it, but that's not the way we do it. How many of you here have uh, bosses that enjoy uh, having the say? <laughs> it's rough uh, to have someone over you that really kind of gets a kick out of telling you what to do and where to go and where to sit and so forth. You see, uh, everyone in the whole company that you work for probably is trying to do the same thing. They're trying to get to that position. So we see this around us, right? This power play stuff that goes on, sometimes in very subtle ways. And I, you know, even in our homes, I, and I plan on getting to that. Um, but Jesus says this isn't the way that we do it. We are not power seekers. We are, we are different. Henry Nouwen says, what makes the temptation to power so seemingly irresistible? Maybe it is that the power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God. Easier to control people than to love people. But you see, the way of the kingdom, and Jesus shows us the way of the kingdom by his very life, is humility. Uh, Being, he says here, to be the youngest. Jesus often talks about becoming like a child. You can't even receive, you can't even enter the kingdom of God if you don't become like a child. A dependent, asking, pestering child. You can't get into the kingdom if you don't become like that. And then to be a servant. And so he's talking about us being humble. Well, you know, I'm tempted to ask you for a show of hands today on how many of you are good at humbling yourself. Um, I am not good at humbling myself. I have to be humiliated. Um, And so what's the difference between humility and humiliation? How many here, uh, or humiliation is when your circumstances are humbled. In other words, stuff stuff happens to you and it's humiliating. Humility is when your heart is humbled. So it's an inner thing. Humiliation is more outward. The place where you learn humility is in humiliation. (laughs) Yes, that's me. (laughs) That's where I learn humility, by being humiliated. And so we pray, your kingdom come, Lord Jesus. We want Jesus' kingdom to come 
But how, how does it come? I thought I'd do a, just a brief excerpt from one of these, um, I can't get away from these person of Jesus studies that Paul Miller wrote because I'm trying to memorize them in Spanish. But he's got a really good one here. You wanna t- we're talking about the kingdom of God coming and how it works. Here's a situation. Husband tosses his underwear on the bedroom floor each morning. Does anyone connect with that? He's never made... (laughs) He's never made the connection between clean underwear and the activity of picking it up and washing it. Mom, (laughs) thanks. Mom always picked it up for him at home. Wife doesn't. And so, husband says, honey, I'm all out of clean underwear. Wife responds, can you remember to put it in the laundry basket? That way I won't forget it. And wife, husband responds, what good will that do? You don't get the laundry done on time anyway. What was that? What? Tell me, what, what was going on? This is how these person of Jesus studies work. I ask the questions, and you tell me what's going on. <laughs> so you can preach here. Why was that last comment so nasty? Speak to me. It's what? It's, it's defensive? Yeah, what else? Arrogant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's on top? Shifting the blame. Yeah. But the husband's the winner, right? In that kind of a in that kind of a remark. He's trying to get the higher he's trying to get the higher ground on his on his wife. Um, he goes higher by bringing her down. We can go higher by boasting, or we can go higher by lowering the people around us, which has been through the years one of my favorite methods. I'm ashamed to say. He's also shifting the problem, as someone said, from himself to her. So what would be the most likely response uh, from the wife, ladies? Do it yourself. What? Cut it out. Some kind of uh, retaliation. And then what's he going to say to her? He's going to retaliate back. And so you have this cycle of retaliation just going around and around and around. Finally, someone has to humble themselves, right? And someone has to say, I'll get it, honey. Uh, You know, no big sigh. Uh, Or he has to finally admit guilt. And I won't, this is all played out here. I won't do that. But one thing I do want to mention really quickly is six, six blessings of humility. Six blessings of humility. Uh, First of all, the argument is stopped. If the husband or the wife would humble themselves and accept the blame and do their own wash, husbands, uh, the argument would be stopped. Number two, when, when we humble ourselves, we are no longer controlled by the other person, right? If the wife humbles herself and simply picks... There's a couple of options that she has. Humble options, actually. 
But if she humbles herself, for example, just picks it up and, and washes it uh, for him again, it takes his control off of her. She's free by humbling herself. Thirdly, you can see clearly in the low place, uh, referencing again uh, you factory workers. If you want to really know what's going on in a company, do you go to the boardroom or do you go to the factory floor? You go to the factory floor. I know that firsthand. The guys on the floor really know what's going on in the business. And so when we humble ourselves and go low, you get to see more clearly what's really going on uh, in a situation. Number four, and this is probably most important, we meet God. We meet God in the low place. Jesus, uh, God himself says, I live in a high and lofty place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. God is there ahead of us in the low place. And Jesus is humble. He says, learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Number five, our ego dies in the place of humiliation, which is good. By the way, men, that's good. Your ego dies is a, is a healthy thing. Uh, number six, another very important dynamic is that God acts on our behalf in the low place. God moves in and God does the work when we will humble ourselves and admit it. So Jesus has shown the way for us by his own life. And we see that reflected in Philippians chapter 2 where it talks about him taking on the form of a servant, becoming nothing. Though he was God, he didn't grasp it. He didn't hang on to that. He didn't hang on to his right to throw underwear on the floor. He let go of his, he didn't let go of his divinity, but he set the glory aside and he took on the form of a servant. He didn't come as a king. His first bed was in a feed trough. So he shows us the way. Jesus offers us not only the model for humility, but also the power by giving us his very person in our lives through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he also gives us a whole new identity as sons and daughters of God so that the low place becomes the high place. Jesus has shown us the way, the way of the kingdom represented in this holy meal that we share is the way of humility, being the child, going down so that grace flows to us in that low place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your word and we thank you, Lord Jesus, for you, uh, who you are in your passion for us, such that it led you to the cross and to a a terrible death of pain and suffering and shame. Father, we thank you that you sent your son uh, given for us. We thank you beyond that, Father and Son, that you have sent the Spirit into our lives. Oh, Lord, may that grace of the Spirit be manifested anew in us, in our new ability to humble ourselves and receive this kingdom in which we ourselves will be judges over the church. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.